Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Jesus fucking Christ, what a week. <laughs> are you are you okay? Like, are things going, like, I, okay? I'm, like, only getting three hours of sleep a night. It's unreal. Because I think the thing that people don't understand, it's, like, I've been doing a lot of media. And so for every time that you see me on media, I'm, like, putting in three or four hours of additional work into other things related to this issue. So... I'm writing op-eds, uh, we're writing a website, we are supporting families. It's just like everything. And so uh, my body now just automatically wakes me up after three hours. It doesn't allow for more because it knows there's more to be done. <laughs> so am I okay? I don't know if I've answered the question, but I'm saying right. I've said all that I want to say on that issue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that you get a lot of credit for uh, changing the narrative in this country in a really short period of time. And it's I've I have never seen anything like this on an issue that has gone from so marginal to so mainstream so quickly. Yeah, it feels really weird. Like, I mean, some of it's strategic, you know, like I had an interview some some place this week I I, can't, I don't know there's just been so many where they were asking like is was this just kind of a fluke and it's like no not quite like there's there is a media strategy going into this uh, but you know at some point this weekend me and my cousin Jenea who I live with are like lying on the couch sad and we turned to each other and I was like you know I bet we could change the narrative on defunding the police if we really like if we like map it out and try and they're like yeah we probably could let's uh let's see like it's going to be an uphill battle but you know maybe we can get more people to actually care about things this way and we have been (laughs) absolutely stunned by how many people have have picked it up like we didn't really think uh that it was going to be quite so successful but it does it does look like we've shifted that good old overton window and uh so, you know, thank you to everybody who's been listening and listening critically and taking it all in because it's all part of it. Well, and everybody, I mean, like we have been listened to a lot. <laughs> we have th- this is going to be a weird episode. <laughs> we sure have. Th- this episode is going to be a combination between I mean, there's a lot of really heavy stuff to talk about and a lot of really sad stuff to talk about. There was another police shooting mm-hmm. that resulted in the death of Chantal Moore. And it's another one of these situations where police were asked, apparently, to perform a mental health check because she thought that she was in danger. She thought she was in danger. And the police showed up to her apartment in New Brunswick and shot her and killed her. And so we have a thread to follow that we started many, many weeks ago that a lot of you folks have been following as well. But we also have a bit of a celebration to do, too. So hopefully we can navigate these two feelings, which is kind of, I think, part of organizing, right? Where you're always in like this like desperate sadness and and feeling that nothing's going to change and, and isolation. But at the same time, you have to find a bit of joy in the way that you're organizing, too. Yeah, exactly. And so first, if you don't mind, I think we should talk about what our stats look like this week because <laughs> I'm really confused. Nora, I think it is just you and I who work here. And I don't even know if we should call it work. <laughs> well, I was going to say work. That's, that word is doing a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you and me in this little podcast land. And we are, I mean, what, what are the charts saying about us right now? 
So we record on Sundays. A lot of folks are new to the podcast. You might not know our regular rhythm. You'll be listening to this uh, probably the minute that it drops on Tuesday, um, which is the day before my birthday, by the way. And um, as of tonight, on Sunday night, we, we're number 10 in Canada for news podcasts. And if you remove the American podcast from that chart, we are number two. We are number two. <laughs> and <laughs> that, I mean, like whatever podcast app you're looking at this on, the little blue circle with the yellow, like I created that <laughs> in Microsoft Paint uh, while on break at work one day. So, you know, it's it, we put a lot of work and time and money into that, <laughs> clearly. Well, so to tell people why you created it. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh, uh, no. It wasn't it just that we had to have an image? Like it was like the no. hosting service was forcing us to have an image? No, that wasn't? No, why, why no, did I create no. it? No. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> because, know. Because I, I have a technique oh that my I really God, like. I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember. <laughs> Nora created an image that was so fucking bad. It was so bad. It was like the most the ultimate bad image. And I was like, oh, no, I will just create something in paint because this is fucking bad. And actually, as bad as it was, it actually looks a lot like Jordan Peterson's um, avatar that he's always using. Yeah. So that tells you something. Which is great. It? Anyway, we said <laughs> we, we said on Facebook that, you know, well, I said that I would only celebrate once we passed the current the cbc is the current because last week uh of you know the kind of fuckery that i went through um uh, before when they asked me to be on their show and then didn't have me on the show because i was too extreme talking about defund the police haha ha. jokes womp. on them uh and a listener and friend said hey if that happens i'll buy you some prosecco and today just a, a couple hours ago Honestly, some Prosecco showed up at my door and I was just like, <laughs> what? So thank you, Mike Walsh, for sending that. Uh, and thank you for uh, celebrating that with us. I'm going to open that right now while Nora starts to thank some of the people we have to thank. Well, and I'm actually I have Prosecco, too, because um, he also uh, extended the offer to me, too. And so I'm sitting here with. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. I have my own bottle as well. And so. This is, you're listening to us, uh, we want you to be celebrating as well. So maybe, you know, grab if you're listening to us at, a, at an appropriate time where you can have some sort of celebratory beverage or food that you really like or pour yourself a bath and celebrate with us because to be Canada's number two news podcast is is really fucking awesome. It's really fucking amazing and fuck everyone who fucking ignored us <laughs> it's also just very hilarious so thank you yes no yeah. but honestly thank you and what a great issue uh for for our listenership to increase on uh, defunding the yeah. police such an important issue um and something that is obviously uh, very close to um, my heart and community is uh, making change in the way that police interact with black people so i really appreciate that people um, listened critically to what Nora and I had to say last week and uh, and spread the word on this being this podcast being a good resource for understanding what it truly means to defund the police. And, and we didn't get into all the issues last week. And so this episode tonight is going to talk about uh, some of the details that people raised with us or other issues that we didn't get to get into. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about how we can continue to organize around this issue. And so we that that's that's what we're going to get into in a couple of minutes. 
But if you're new to this podcast or if you're not at all new to this podcast, we usually start by thanking folks that are supporting us because we don't have any kind of paywall. Everybody gets to listen to the same podcast. So we want to thank everyone that makes this podcast possible through their financial support. Now, before I start this list, um, it's it's kind of long. So bear with us. And and you'll also note that we didn't do it last week because, uh, you know, the issue was just so intense last week. So we didn't do it. But this is uh, something that we do typically do. And we don't have any sponsors. All of our all of our support comes directly from our listeners. So thank you. Yeah. And so thanks, especially to the folks who've been here from the beginning. There were a lot of of, of supportive posts and supportive gifts. Oh my God, gifs. Um, and, uh, and, and really positive comments we got from people that have listened to us for a long time. Um, but to those of us, those of you who changed your pledge or who donated to us in the last uh, two weeks, we have to say thank you. And so this week we have to start off by thanking, this is actually funny. We have to start out by thanking my aunt. <laughs> Thanks to Mia for your support. <laughs> Thanks Kira, Susan, Charday, Lisa, Chrissy, Amanda. Thanks to Jessamine, uh, Sean, Natalie, Emma, Stephen, Laura, Marla. Thank you, Rachel and Lindsay. This is a little bit like the romper room where they always like would say your name, but they never said Nora. So, I mean, that sucked. Uh, thank you, Jana, Michael, James, John, Asher, Daniela, Alex, T, Olivier, Timothy, Laura, Christine, Madison, Ali, Christy, Hyungyu, Erica, Ashley, Amelia, Seth, Christy, Dana, Nicole, Brian, Carly, Angela, Sarah, Ophelia. I have to change the page. <laughs> Anna, Quinn, Britt, Miles, Sarah, Elena, Ellie, Maya, Gemma, Megan, Leah, Naya, Ali, Molly, Simon, Brent. You all have such beautiful names. I feel like I can be making a song right now. Michael, Amber, Francis, Dominic, Maya, Elise, Sarah, Kay, Jonathan. Very funny for those two names to be beside each other. Not Jonathan Kay. Um, not in the right order, so that's good. Or the wrong order. <laughs> not in the wrong order. Rebecca, Monica, Kusha, Heather. And I believe that brings us back to where we were two weeks ago. Thank you all so, so much. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, well, Nora, it's been quite the week. There have been protests from Whitehorse in the north all the way down to Miami in the south uh, and then beyond. Like there are people who have been organizing Black Lives Matter protests uh, in Brazil, in Finland, in Belgium, uh, all over the world, there was a there was a protest against police uh, that my family were were sending me from Jamaica. It's like uh, there's something's happening in this moment where people are are recognizing uh, the way that uh, police operate around the world. It's all very similar. It's an European institution uh, is anti-black and generally bad for our communities. Uh, and just just as we're talking right now, just a couple hours ago, the Minneapolis City Council, a majority of people, of councillors on the Minneapolis City Council have announced that they intend to disband the police service. It's, it's uh, stunning what has happened in the last week as a result of people taking to the streets, which, you know, as we've said many times on this podcast, it's the way to go if you want to 
if you want to change something. Totally. I like I it's actually kind of amazing to think of how much things have changed in the last couple of weeks where police being able to do um, violence, I guess, uh, in a way that wasn't really possible, I think, before the pandemic. So before the pandemic, you know, it's chaotic. We're all busy. We give the benefit of the doubt to the news that we might hear or not hear. Uh, and assume that, okay, maybe there's a dispute. Maybe what's happening, like, there's two sides to this story. And and there's this weird phenomenon where a lot of people have said that, well, we've got this video of George Floyd being killed and we can watch it on, we, we see it happening and that has changed everything. And it ignores the fact that we've had video for many years of, of black people being killed by police and indigenous people being killed by police. Mm-hmm. This is not not new. And in fact, in Montreal, I mean, there you know, there's been many situations, uh, uh, Boney Jean-Pierre, Nicholas Gibbs, uh, uh, of course, it started. Uh, Pierre Coriolan. Pierre Coriolan started with uh, Freddie Villanueva in uh, in two thousand and eight, and 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 some of these cases were caught on camera, and mm-hmm. and so it isn't actually easy. It's not as easy as the as as just there was this spark in the United States as as we witnessed this horrific end of the life of George Floyd, but that these things have been building for years and years and years, and so this flashpoint right now. I mean, it's amazing. You mentioned Whitehorse. There were 900 people in Whitehorse. There were there was more than 10,000 people in London, Ontario. There were 1,000 people right. in Trois-Rivières. I was at a rally today mm-hmm. with 3,000 people in Quebec City. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, and actually, I should say, um, shout out to the folks that I met in Quebec City who are fans of the podcast. <laughs> like, we will, hey. we will be touring this, and I promise Sandy's going to come to Quebec City. Because she has to. Oh, I love Quebec City. Yeah. I love Quebec City. Yeah. I said the last time you came, we didn't have a podcast, so we couldn't do anything with that. <laughs> <laughs> was that, is that true? The last time I was in Quebec, we hadn't started this? No. It is true. Yes. We had not started it. No. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, next time. <laughs> So, so there is a moment that's happening, and 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 at the same time that the that this moment is happening, there's a lot of questions about what do we do next with activism, and so we'll talk about that I think a little bit later, and then a lot of questions like, okay, defund the police sounds like a catchy slogan, but what does that functionally mean? And and last week we talked a lot about that, but we didn't talk about how do you how do you deal with mass murder? How do you deal with white collar crime? How do you, what do you replace the police with? And what does that look like? And so tonight, I think that that's, it's a good opportunity for us to address some of those questions, because if we're going to have these conversations with our family members and our friends, which we must, we have to have those arguments and let people understand that this is not a slogan alone. This is not a catchphrase. This is not something to only put on a t-shirt, though you should put it on a t-shirt, but that this is a very realistic public policy that each and every one of you can bring to your municipal councils, your town councils, or your city councils, and start to demand that we that we take our money back from these murderous forces. The one other thing that I want to say before we move on to talking about those issues is, you know, a lot of what you just brought up is related to, um, you know, how people are able to engage in this time of like a global pandemic where the economy has largely been shut down, people have largely been in their homes or have been forced to continue working as essential services in perhaps a reduced way or perhaps they're just doing more depending on uh, how the economy has affected you. But generally, more and more people are at home. 
And the fact that people can now engage in their democracy in this way, in such a way where uh, we can literally see the shift in how we engage on an issue and how we prioritize an issue so effectively, should also get us thinking about how much we work and what that does to our political engagement and our civic engagement and how we give up how much we give up uh, to to build our society. But that's a topic for another day. I just wanted to drop that there because I think it's really, really important. That's so profound. I mean, we are almost on summer 2020. And, and you'll remember in summer 2019 that one of our most popular episodes was talking about why we need time off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we're seeing that live right now. Like, you know, we people have wanted to 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 change this issue. Have been talking about defunding the police for so long, for so long. Uh, and now um, there is a way that organizers have a little bit more time to work on it. And there's a way that people have a little bit more um, uh, excess time to decide how they're going to engage and. Uh, I think, you know, we're we're seeing the value of having more time off in our lives. And that's something that we should definitely be thinking about as this is happening. Totally. So one of the things that I was shocked by this week, and I was shocked by a piece of news that was written in January 2018. So an article that I didn't see when it was first ran <laughs> in January t- uh, 2018. And it was in McLean's. And Sandy, I don't know if you saw this article, but it's called The Rise of the SWAT Team. Routine police work in Canada is now militarized. Did you see this? Um, I think I saw it making the rounds, but I haven't read it yet. Okay, perfect. Because the statistics in this piece are exactly what help to explain why we need to defund the police. So it was written by Kevin Walby and Brendan Rosier of the University of Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba. And it, they're doing research on how policing has changed. And I, like, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've, we exist in a moment where there's this neoliberal transformation of society, where uh, our, our ability to protest has been criminalized, where our, our free time to volunteer or be engaged in our communities has been decimated by the fact that we have low wages and precarious work and that we're taking care of more people than ever before because the, the, the welfare state that was built in the post-war period has been, you know, more and more eroded. And so at the same time as that, crime has been steadily decreasing. It's been on a long decrease for most people. Of course, who is still the target of most crime is racialized people, especially black people, especially indigenous people, especially indigenous women. But if you look at the statistics of how uh, Canadian policing has changed, this really blew my mind. So in this article, they write that in 1980, the average yearly number of deployments for Canadian tactical units, so what we would call SWAT teams, mm-hmm. was about 60 total per unit. And their research shows that, uh, that the, the deployments for Canadian tactical units now, so 2018, is approximately 1,300 per unit, an increase of roughly 2,100% in 37 years. Wow. And these... <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. And these units are doing things like 
checking in on mental health checks or wellness checks or domestic yeah domestic violence complaints or or calls for help or delivering fucking warrants (laughs) like what yeah oh my god oh that's awful so, I mean, that alone just is such a great example. I mean, and they're also based in Winnipeg. In Winnipeg police, I mean, I always say that the worst police force in Canada is Peel. Um, and I think you might have some opinion on that, too. Um, it's definitely up there. <laughs> but Winnipeg is fucking also extremely up there, too. Definitely. And and this this like this increased militarization, this this increased a uh, violent approach to everyday quote unquote crime and a lot of these incidences could be solved by injections into housing and into social services this is i think what needs to underpin the discussion in this episode is what what do we lose when we're giving so much money to police and what do they take from that money how do they militarize themselves further and buy even more lethal uh, toys for them to oppress society with Oh my God. I just, I'm still reeling from that information that you just provided because it's like, what in the world would you need to spend all of this money uh, training up like these, these tactical units to deliver warrants? Like I, man, you know, like some of the, uh, the, the response that I've gotten this week is like people really of, of how people think about what it is that the police do is is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, there's been people who responded to say, you know, uh, women are going to, you know, have way more rapes <laughs> if, <laughs> if the police aren't around. People who have responded to say, and I don't know if this actually made it on the air, but there was definitely a journalist who was interviewing me who said, if, if, we, if we do not have police, we will never be able to prosecute anything. And I said, what? Uh, How do you figure? She was like, the the whole legal system falls apart. No one gets held accountable for anything. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I have some thoughts on prosecution, but let's just put my own thoughts about that aside for a second. And can I ask you, do you think that the police prosecute people? (laughs) And she's like, she said, well, it's all linked. I mean, they're part of it. And I was like, they're, they're not. (laughs) not. Uh, And the fact that people don't know that, like the way, what it is exactly that police do, that police only attend to um, about uh, 10% of the, of, of cases of say sexual violence in Canada, that the police have zero to do, uh, with the prosecution. That's attorneys generals and crown, uh, crown attorneys, uh, in, uh, across the country, uh, that, you know, um, all of the money that we've been sending to police, a lot of it over the years has gone into increased militarization and no increased supports in terms of safety. It's like we we really need to have a, uh, a discussion about what it is exactly that the police do, because I was certainly surprised this week to find out that uh, how many people thought that the police do a lot more than they actually do. One of the statistics that stood out for me when I was researching my book was that uh, the biggest impact on male homicide 
in uh, the period of crime from 1960 to 1980 or something was the right for women to divorce their husbands. Wow. Because women were no longer murdering their husbands out of duress or out of desperation or whatever. Wow. And that actually imp- positively impacted the murder rate on men. That's that, that reduced how many men were being murdered. And I think that that is such an interesting example of how, you know, you can look at the problem of men being murdered. That's a really big problem. And how do we get rid of that? Oh, we need more police to stop men from being murdered. Or you can look at the reasons for why people are getting murdered and you start to actually get a completely different picture. Now, also from this article is um, this question of wellness checks. So, you know, we've had this horrible situation with Chantal Moore being uh, killed upon having a wellness check. And this... And I should also mention, uh, Nora, before you go on, that last week, uh, Caleb Tabilo Njoko was also uh, called the police for, or someone called the police for a mental health emergency in London, Ontario. And he, much like Regis Korczynski-Paquette, fell to his death uh, from a number of stories up in a high-rise building. And now the Special Investigations Unit is investigating that situation as well. So, you know, this is all happening in the last week. I I should mention that he is a black man. Yeah, and you'll remember last week that I mentioned on the on the SIU website that they were also investigating another similar call for another person who fell off of their balcony and died. It was a 76-year-old woman in Barrie, Ontario. So clearly on the whole mental health side, the police are failing. But the Calgary Tactical Unit. So Calgary Police has gotten a lot of praise. They were marching a lot with the four rallies, I think, that's happened in Calgary in the past week, which is amazing. So shout out to so Calgary. Amazing. Um, they they actually reduced the number of their tactical employments, employments, so the SWAT team actually showing up on, on well-being checks. I mean, could you imagine having a well-being, quote-unquote, check and the SWAT team showing up? It makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely makes, no sense. No sense. But, you know, they have reduced the number of times that this happened. So in 2007, they had 130 tactical uh, uh, calls in for well mental health well-being checks. And that was reduced to 60 in 2016. But 60 is still a lot. If you compare that to Winnipeg, in Winnipeg, in 2013, there were fewer than 20, 20 suicide threats and well-being checks where the tactical teams responded. And by 2016, so three years later, there were almost 300 deployments of the SWAT team for well-being checks. It's like we're, we're obviously going in the wrong direction here, like because the, the results and the danger uh, to people who are literally calling for help is unconscionable. And it's like in this society... Uh, you know, I, I know, I hear you. Like there are people who hear defund the police and hear uh, take away my safety when you hear when you hear that phrase, defund the police. But it's like if you look, if you just look at exactly what it is the police are doing, they literally do almost nothing. Well, they literally do nothing <laughs> well. <laughs> they don't they don't do anything well. It's like, why in the world are those statistics of, of SWAT members attending to uh, mental wellness checks going up. Why? Why would that be the case? I mean, we can get to conspiratorial about it and say that this is the way that the state 
actively tries to make sure that people who are struggling with mental health are killed or are harmed or are uh, traumatized. Um, and it's not actually much of a conspiracy because I think there's a lot of examples of that. I mean, I had folks on Twitter telling me about their own experiences with having mental health checks and having like the the good uh, uh, hap- happen to have a good social worker be able to intervene before the police made it into an issue. But in the case of the man in London, Ontario, that you talked about, I believe I read that he had also just had an interaction with police a week before. And so you can imagine that someone who's traumatized, scared, having a mental health crisis, and then the police show up at their door. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't actually matter if the police physically push that person out the out the out off the balcony or out the window because their presence is going to have an impact. It's going to have an impact. And it's like, when did this happen? Impact. I think it was uh, June 3rd. Right. Like it like think about what the context of that happening is. This is a black man who's had a mental health crisis in the in the past week already, who is probably, like many black people all over the world, struggling with what has happened all over our television screens, our radio waves, what we're reading in the news in the last couple of weeks. Like, man, the, the, the way that the sadness and anger creeps up on me and has an impact on me, I can only imagine if I was struggling with some sort of mental illness. And so, for like, think of all of that that is wrapped up into someone who then needs some sort of mental health support and then the police show up oh my God. at your door. It's already a bad situation. It's already fucked up. I have to like imagine that a lot of people who are f- who find themselves like um, skeptical, I guess, of this discussion about defunding the police have never had the police show up at their door. But I mean, I I have I've I've been in a very strange situation where the police tried to arrest me on my front doorstep, and it's really fucked up. <laughs> like it's. Uh, it's a really scary yeah. situation, and in my situation, I was I was um, not in a mental health crisis. I would it happened just by serendipity. There was a protest outside my front door, and I'm a seasoned protester and seasoned rally uh, uh, police liaison, so I know how to talk to police. And you know, like the the idea that someone is showing up to any of the stuff with a gun, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's really, really, really horrible. Um, and I think that I think that a lot of people who might be skeptical to talk about defunding the police, I think on the mental health side, they kind of say, OK, that might make sense. Maybe you want someone else showing up like a social worker. And I mean, we should talk about this in a second because I have a question for you. But like, let's remember also the social work, sure, um, child services. I mean, they are also super racist and also destroy families. Anyone that has the power of the state to take away your children, uh, if it's, in a, if it's a, an agency that's embedded with white supremacy, then they also need to be reformed and they also need to be properly uh, fixed to make sure that they're not disproportionately targeting racialized black and indigenous children children, which is the case currently, but we can maybe talk about that Absolutely. in a bit. But the the mm-hmm. question that I saw a lot this week was, but Sandy, although it was like to me, but Nora, what about <laughs> the serial killers? Oh my God. Oh my God. Such, so many people are talking about, what about the serial killers? What about violent crime? What about when somebody robs me at gunpoint? And it's like, you know what? I actually, so I wrote a a piece in the Huffington Post uh, last week 
where I was sitting down to write it and I thought to myself, I can go look up the arguments on this or I can like actually rest with this in my head because if I believe, if I believe this and I do strongly that we don't need the police in our society, then I need to be able to answer this question. And uh, if you are not a writer, um, uh, I hope that you have some way of like uh, wrestling with your own ideas and figuring it out because writing for me can sometimes really help me figure out what my my own arguments are totally. uh, on a particular issue. I didn't know what I thought about uh, the police and their engagement on violent crime was before I started writing it. I figured it out as I was writing it. And I just thought, man, like actually the police, they don't prevent violent crime in our society. I mean, nowhere is that that more obvious than our problem with femicide and gender-based violence, right? Like that, the police have zero... Um, uh, effect on the prevalence of those issues in our society. And I realized as I was writing, all they do is respond to it. And most of the time, and then this is uh, stuff that I, you know, had conjecture about and then uh, um, verified looking up uh, information about afterwards. Most of the time, police are only responding to violent crime. They are very, very rarely actually intercepting violent crime as it happens. And when they are responding to violent crime like serial killers, let me tell you, if those victims are not the right kind of victims, please don't really give a fuck. They do a really bad job at investigating the violent crimes that affect um particular kinds of women or women in general, to be honest, um, and who affect the, the wrong types of victims. So, uh, you know, like I've been talking a lot this week about the criticisms that the Toronto police services, uh, that were, uh, um, that were lobbed at the Toronto police services because they announced that there was no serial killer in, uh, the, the queer community, the church street village in Toronto even though community members have been saying to the police, there's got to be, there's a serial killer. People are going missing. Something's happening. They actually announced that there was no serial killer. And the victims were mostly racialized queer men. It wasn't until there was a white man who was also horrifically and tragically killed by Bruce MacArthur that the investigation ramped up and the police discovered and had to admit as community members already knew because you know if there's a, if there's if, if people are going missing in your community and uh you know dying like you 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 know what's happening um they had to announce that oh yeah in fact there was a serial killer and how did the police answer the criticisms they said it was the fault of the queer community in the church retreat village for not giving them enough information. Well, if the police are relying on other people to do the investigations anyway, let's, again, as I said last week, take out that fucking middleman because they are not doing a good enough job at um, supporting our communities because what we need when a violent crime happens is an effective investigation 
to 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 so that we can stop that violent crime from happening in the future from the same perpetrator or to figure out how we can change our society to prevent those types of violent crimes from happening the police are 100% not doing the last thing that i just said uh, trying to figure out how to prevent those things and in terms of responding to it doing a pretty shitty job yeah absolutely i mean canada's most notorious serial killer was robert picton And his victims were mostly indigenous. They were sex workers. They were poor women. And there were rumors for years in Vancouver's downtown east side that someone was preying on indigenous women. And in fact, if you look at the history of serial killers in Canada, by and large, they target indigenous women, women who might be more vulnerable or women who might be uh, easier for the police to ignore because of systemic racism. I mean, we've already gone to the one year anniversary of the report into murder to missing indigenous women and girls. And we have a federal government that has done fuck all on that report. I mean, we should probably also talk about um, Trudeau kneeling because we've had some uh, Twitter friends (laughs) ask about our opinion on that. But if you think of uh, and I had this conversation with someone on, on, online uh, the other day, like, it's not just Picton. Picton's a perfect example of where the police completely failed and where you can imagine a civilian investigative team being able to do that work and a team that is based on the in the community that's being targeted because that's where news is being shared and information is being um, given that that actually indicates who probably is doing the work. But then you also have uh, serial killers like Elizabeth Wetlaufer, who killed people in long-term care, mm-hmm. and she exploited the, the the problems in long-term care to be able to kill eight people. She was only caught because she confessed to a, a nurse at CAMH in Toronto, a mental health uh, facility there. And, um, and I think a lot, of course, about uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, who police didn't stop him from coming to the mosque and shooting everybody. And and, and he had even gone to a mall and almost com- uh, carried out a mass murder at a local mall. Uh, he had his guns ready. He loaded them in the parking garage. And then he, I don't know, chickened out is not the right word, but he was too afraid to carry out a mass murder in the mall in the no- uh, November before he carried out the mass murder at the, at the mosque in Saint-Foy. And the police were nowhere. The police didn't have him on his radar, on their radar. And the night that he carried out that that shooting, the police detained members of the mosque saying that they were responsible. Yeah. While 911 operators kept uh, Bissonnette online for an hour talking, uh, talking with him and reasoning with him and making sure he didn't hang up until he could be located in his car on the Beaupre coast to be able to be arrested. And, and then Gabriel, Gabriel Wart- ah, see, we're <laughs> on the same tip. Like, what about Go Gabriel ahead. Wartman? What about Gabriel Wartman? And of course, we're talking about the Nova Scotia mass murder that happened uh, just, what, two months ago in April, uh, where this man, he was known to police because he had inflicted domestic violence, violence against women, uh, against his partner, they were not able to to prevent that man from killing 22 people in Nova Scotia. Violent crime. It's the thing that everybody turns to when we talk about this issue. Yeah. But the police are not doing a good job at preventing violent crime, and they are certainly not doing a good job at responding to it. So quite frankly, it shouldn't be 
the police doing it. They do a bad job. It should be, we should create something new. In in our society, do we not deserve to have services that actually implement what they are meant to implement? I say yes. And I also (laughs) say that those services should not kill indigenous and black people at these astronomical rates. So I just, I I, like the, the, this service is irredeemable and we have to move away uh, from policing as our option for safety and security in our society. Like we are all losing out because of it. Yeah, well, it's a safety and security that, and we said this last week, that that is only for a certain kind of person in this country. Uh, only a certain kind of person feels comfortable to call the police if someone breaks into their house or breaks into their car. And we need to reflect on why that is. And the answer is obvious. It's it's white supremacy and power. And so this, I think, gets us back to this point about I was saying that we can't necessarily just say, oh, you know, it just is social workers that can just take the job or or the or child services that can just take this job, because a lot of these industries are also imbued with white supremacy and, yeah. uh, and, and and this question of power, who has power within our society. And so, you know, if you're listening to these discussions and you're wondering how you can take action, it's really important to not just put all of the blame into policing because policing is a symptom of the problem. Now, if you're sick and one of the symptoms is like making you super itchy, <laughs> you're going to fix that itch. So, yeah, abolish the police. Oh, I think you need to go harder than that. If you're like sick oh, really? and one of the symptoms is like a flesh eating bacteria eating your entire leg, <laughs> then you need to cut off your leg to get rid of that flesh eating bacteria. Maybe that's not a perfect analogy, but you know what I mean. Like it needs to go harder than like an itch. This isn't an itch. You have never had a post pregnancy itch. <laughs> okay, you know what? Fair enough. I'll give you that. But let's be clear. The itch that Nora is referring to is a post-pregnancy itch. Okay. <laughs> there, there's, there's this like syndrome that you can have when you're pregnant that is so bad that they induce pregnancy to like get rid of it. And they're like, okay, you can just give birth now. Oh, shit. It's called P-U-P-P-P. Yeah. And I had it after I had kids and they're like, oh, fuck, sorry, you've already given birth. You have to just deal with this itch. So when I... T- <laughs> When I talk about itchiness... Oh God, you're laughing, but I feel like there's nothing funny about it's this. It's funny. It's super funny in retrospect because I was literally like in emergency going, you have to make this itch stop. <laughs> like, please give me a medical grade cheese grater because this has to stop. Okay, so policing is definitely a post-pregnancy itch level uh, problem. <laughs> But we ha- we have to have that discussion about power and how we divest power. How do we empower our communities to have our own, I don't know, security system? Security is just such a militarized term right now that I even hate using it. But like, how do we protect one another within the places that we live? And and how do we identify white supremacy within each of these institutions to make sure that the solutions to defunding the police are not necessarily other white supremacist institutions that will perpetuate the problem in different ways? Yeah. And I think so. A lot of people have been asking me this week, well, what can we do? I think one of the 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 clearest paths forward is that we need to. Uh, convince people in our communities where we're at that defunding the police is the right way to go. So many people still are looking at this at this phrase and saying to themselves, well, that sounds ridiculous. I'm not even going to engage with it. So for those of you who have engaged with it, it is 
it is imperative upon you to have those discussions with people at your workplace. If you're part of a union, you folks should be organizing workshops right now and organizing statements that don't just say, we support the Black Lives Matter rallies. We need to understand that black and white people, blah, 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 should hold hands and blah, blah, blah. You, your statements should be specifically about defunding the police. You should be sending those uh, those positions that you're 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 taking directly to policymakers, and you should be if it is controversial in your membership, you should be having workshops to educate people as to why this is rational. Like, I mean, for fuck's sake, Mitt Romney, fucking Mitt Romney, was at a Black Lives Matter <laughs> protest today. If Mitt Romney can be at a Black Lives Matter protest, unions, organizations. And the fucking NDP should be able to say unequivocally that we need to defund the police. Okay. And so it's up to us who are members of those organizations to make sure uh, that we, we force, we make it impossible for progressive organizations to refuse to take up the mantle, to take up the position that defunding the police is the only option for ensuring that this anti-black institution um, stops killing us, okay? And so uh, it is upon you to, to go into your community and make sure uh, that, that people are getting educated in the way that they need to be educated. And also to refuse fucking performative acts from people like Justin Trudeau, okay? When Justin Trudeau or when <laughs> fucking police attend these protests and like kneel and raise their fists, that does absolutely the fuck nothing because guess what? Those are the people in power. Those are the people in power who have all the power in the world to change these institutions such that they do not have the funding that they currently have to continue to militarize and to continue to kill uh, black and indigenous people, okay? And so it is not enough to just kneel at a rally surrounded by your security guards and, oh, how convenient, a photographer. Like, that is... That is nothing. That does absolutely nothing except change the discourse that happens in media um, because people are like, oh, man, Sandy, what did you think about the, <laughs> the prime minister kneeling down? I thought nothing of it. I thought it was a fucking distraction. That man has the power to change the law. And if that's not what he's going to do, it doesn't matter what else he's fucking doing. I, it, it, like all of that is performative bullshit that has absolutely no impact on our ability to live safely and securely in this society as black people. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've been really thinking about a lot from like my white Southern Ontario perspective, Northern Ontario, if you think of the other side of my family, but of course I grew up in the South is like white people. I know we have a lot of white listeners all of you have a history, a family history that is entwined with indigenous realities and history and black realities and history. And there is so much for us to learn and unlearn and talk about with our families to make sure that it's not ignored and to see where our families were in these struggles in the 1700s with black Canadians, well, before Canada, black people uh, in the 1800s 
with black people living in, in Canada or, or the role that our families have taken land, stolen land, made money off of inheritance, made money off of passing farmland from generation to generation, farmland that you never paid for and that you've gotten tons of money from developers for. I mean, there's so much that us white people have to kind of account for in our histories And there's no, we're not forced to do that. We're not forced to reckon with our own histories and to reckon with those inheritances that we might get or the, the, the farmhouse that we might be given from a, a, a great uncle that never uh, really was in touch with us but didn't have family and give it to us in our name anyway. And until we honestly reckon with what kind of wealth has been passed to us through these oppressive histories, we're not going to be able to undo the power that white supremacy has because white supremacy is not just state power through security forces, but it's also social power. It's power through uh, the economy. It's power through inheritance. And I think that, like, I've seen a lot of people sharing information about um, about the KKK organizing in, in parts of Western Canada, in parts of Southwestern Ontario, or different kinds of racist orders that help to kind of create the small town communities that they have to be white bastions of Canadianism or Ontarioism or of Saskatchewanism or whatever. And And I really need you folks to look back in your family histories and challenge people's assumptions. Because when we start to undo a lot of these understandings of what makes us Canadian, and and, and we actually start to chip away at that understanding of whiteness. And, And then we understand how we have given that whiteness and that white supremacy power within our security forces like police. And things become a lot more clear. So I really hope that you take that time within your own families, within your communities, and do a bit of documentation or a little bit of research. And you might be surprised to find what you find. And there's no shame in talking about this stuff and making sure that your family members and your friends and your social networks understand that we've all benefited from white supremacy. And to unbenefit from it really does mean that we are confronting the police, confronting power, confronting politicians whose entire political agenda and popularity is based on literal white supremacy. 